Well, good morning. Since I did the welcome, half of you showed up, which is good. It's good to see more faces. It's good to, to be here as God's people today. I do want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 99, Psalm 99. We are starting a new series today uh, that we've entitled Made to Worship. We're gonna spend about five or six weeks walking through a, a, a series committed to helping us understand uh, the topic, not just the topic, but what worship is. Uh, I think that uh, it's safe for me to say, and I include me in this, that I think oftentimes we have a very narrow, restricted view of what worship is. And so what we want to do is spend time over the next five, six weeks unpacking several different passages from God's word, helping us understand what worship is, what worship is. And so we've entitled this series, Made to Worship. We're going to begin with the first sermon in the series today that I've entitled, The God of Our Worship. The God of Our Worship. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we consider Psalm 99 today. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you for the Bible. Lord, we don't want to take this treasure for granted, and often we do. Father, thank you for giving us such a, a rich treasure for us to dive into and to, to know you better and to understand your purpose and will for each of us. So Lord, tonight, to this morning, as we consider Psalm 99, as we think about what it is you've called us to be as your people, a people of worship, Lord, would you help us to understand where we must begin when we think about worshiping you? Lord, help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, Pastor John Piper begins with these words. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. These are the words of a faithful pastor for so many years writing a book on missions. This was a book on missions. Let the nations be glad. The missions book. At the very beginning, he says, missions is not ultimate. Worship is ultimate. Everyone worships. No one is worship neutral. It's a well-known and proven fact. The, the object of our worship will vary quite a bit. We may worship things such as success or money, fame, even ourselves, but no one is worship neutral. You worship someone or something. And we all worship because God created us to worship. 
problem though is that because of sin, we often distort this worship. We, we often distort it through idolatry, worshiping other things besides God. We, we often grow in our sin and, and, and miss the, the purpose of worship and the object, we get the object of our worship wrong, even in the church. You could be here today and not, been here from the beginning this morning and not yet have worshiped the Lord. You know, there's a lot of talk and discussion about worship in the church today. Books are published, conferences are held, discussions are carried on, and this topic has generated a lot of healthy conversation, and it's often resulted in much good fruit. At the same time, this topic has also generated a lot of division. And so it is right and good that we talk about worship, worship of the true God, because it is the highest honor and calling we have as people made in the image of God. That's why we must get it right when it comes to worship. But here's the challenge we're up against. Yes, our sinful selves and pride but I have found that in most discussions about worship, we start at the wrong place. Too often, when we think about worship, we seem to be more concerned with the how rather than the who. We, start, we have a wrong starting point. Now certainly, how we worship matters, and the Bible has much to say about how we worship God. We're gonna be looking at that some over the next few weeks. But friends, if we neglect the object and purpose of our worship, we will have done ourselves little good. And so before we get to the how, we must understand who it is we worship. If one of your great hopes from this series is that other people will be further convinced of your style or approach to worship, then it proves your understanding of worship is inadequate, and I would say deeply flawed. Because it proves that you're starting at the wrong place. So our goal today and our goal throughout this series will be to help us understand what worship is about. And we're gonna begin this morning with the who of worship. Because if we don't understand who it is we worship, if we don't understand the object of our, and, and, and purpose of our worship, then we might as well not even talk about the how. Yeah, they're certainly tied together. We'll be looking at that over the weeks to come. So our goal today is, is simple and staggering. It's simple, because we want to be reminded of the object and purpose of our worship. That is God, right? God is our object of our worship. But it's staggering because we will never fully fathom the depths of who God is. So as we consider Psalm 99, let's allow God's word to point us to the one whom we are called to worship. Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word. I wanna read Psalm 99, all nine verses. Psalm 99. This is the word of the Lord. 
The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. You may be seated. As we consider the who of worship today, and as we consider Psalm 99, we have two simple points. We're gonna look at reasons to worship and responding in worship. Reasons to worship and responding in worship. Two, two simple thoughts today as we work through this psalm together. Let's begin now with reasons to worship God. Psalm 99 is a psalm of worship because it declares the majesty and glory of God. There's a lot of worship in this psalm because there's a lot about God in this psalm. Let's just consider some of the reflections of the psalmist as he gives us several reasons. This is not exhaustive, but he just gives us several reasons why we ought to worship God. First is that he reigns over all. You see that in verses one and two. He reigns over all. He's sovereign. The Lord reigns. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. points to God's sovereign authority. He is king, the supreme ruler over everything. Always has been, currently is, always will be. And this authority is something that we must always keep before us. You, you remember the queen of Sheba? Back in 1 Kings, way back in the Old Testament, back in 1 Kings chapter 10, this was during the reign of King Solomon. The queen of Sheba comes from the south up to visit Solomon. She's intrigued by him. She's heard all of these things about King Solomon, of how smart he is, how wise he is, and how wealthy this, this king is. And she comes to, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse five, after she had seen all of his house and heard all of his answers to her questions, the Bible says this, there was no more breath in her. No more breath in her. Now Jesus picks up on the same occasion in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, there in verse 42, Jesus makes a reference to the queen of Sheba when he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Jesus was referring obviously to himself and what a great contrast. Solomon was an impressive king. He had an impressive house. He had an impressive reign and rule. He, he was an impressive ruler. So much so that it left another queen breathless. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, there's something greater than Solomon. There's someone greater and wiser and more powerful than this great earthly king. Friends, it's just a reminder that we serve a king greater than Solomon. And you may not know Solomon all that well and have experienced his rule and reign, obviously, but he would be considered one of the greatest kings ever. And the king we serve is infinitely greater than he. His sovereign authority, his reign is, is without ends. He is over all things. Just one reason we should worship him. But a second reason, verse three. Actually, you see this in verse three, verse five, and verse nine. He is holy. Notice the, the repeat of this phrase. It says in verse three, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And then verse five, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then in verse nine, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. It would make for a great song, wouldn't it? It's the refrain the angels even sing. No less than three times the holiness of God is referenced here. See, when you think about the reign of God, the sovereign authority of God, that points to his, his activity. But the holiness of God reminds us about the character of God. Now, we have to be honest. Holiness is difficult for us to fully understand. God's holiness does refer to his perfect freedom from anything sinful or evil, as well as his perfect conformity to his own perfect character. It's something that, that's difficult for us to fathom because we know that we don't have a perfect character and we know that we are not without sin. It's difficult because we often think in terms of moral perfection. We think of holiness, we would equate that in our thinking of moral perfection. Never does wrong. That would fall a little short of a definition of holiness. Well, it does include the fact that God never does wrong and that God has never sinned or has evil within him. It stretches beyond that to the very nature of who he is that separates him from everything else. God's holiness, it, it, for us, is, is both a comforting and terrifying thing. It, it should be comforting because it does remind us that we serve and worship a God who is flawless in his character and in his activity. He does no wrong. He is without sin. That should be comforting because it, it, it should be comforting because we worship and serve a God who is perfect. 
but it's terrifying because the holiness of God is one of our greatest problems. The fact that God is holy means that his standard is holy. He will say it in the Old Testament and he will say it in the New Testament that I am holy, therefore you be holy. That's my summarized version of it. I'm holy, you be holy. And that's a problem for us, isn't it? It's a big problem. God's holiness is one of our greatest problems because we aren't holy and he is. That's why when the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, when presented with the vision of God's holiness, could only respond by saying, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As we will not worship God as we should, until we see him as we must. And that includes his holiness. We'll get to this in another sermon, most likely next week. But when we think about the holiness of God and we're responding in our worship of a holy God, one of the ways that we demonstrate God's worth and amazing character is by striving to be like him. A pursuit of holiness or the pursuit of holiness is also an act of worship itself. And we need help because we can't do that on our own and we'll get to that in just a moment. We need to be reminded for now that we worship God because he reigns supreme over all things and he is holy. He is completely different than anything else in his creation and he is without flaw. He was without sin. He, he is perfect in every essence, in, in every part of his being. Number three, he is righteous. We could say this, this is an extension of his holiness. Verse four tells us that God is a king who loves and executes justice. God's righteousness means that he will always do what is right. Absolutely everything. You will never be able to look at God and with some level of credibility say, what is this you have done, God? You may say that to him, but God is not the one in the wrong. It would be your inability to understand. We'll never be, be able to look at God and say, what are, what are you doing, God? You can't do that. One of the many places we see God's righteousness illustrated in the Bible is his dealing with Job. The book of Job in the Old Testament. And if you know the story of Job, you will remember that Job was considered to be a righteous man. And yet God permitted him to be tested beyond anything we would ever be, we would ever try to imagine. He lost his children, he lost his home, he lost everything. 
And throughout the book, Job maintains his innocence and even gets to the point where he begins to question whether or not God had been righteous in his dealings with Job. To which God answers in Job chapter 40, verse two. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Even after all of this time of Job's questioning and struggle and even beginning to wonder if God's treatment of him was right, God responds in this very lengthy response in chapter 38 or 39, right in that, and then he just simply says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And all Job could do is just cover his mouth. That's all he could do. Because God must be worshiped because he is righteous and he does what is right. It should also inform how we live. It should also inform that we are to pursue a life of righteousness, a life of seeking justice, a life of seeking to do the right thing for the glory of the God who is righteous. So he is sovereign, he is holy, he is righteous. But then number four, he hears our prayers. That may seem a little out of the flow. We've... We've seen this being explained to us in the psalm in verses one through five. And then in verses six and seven, we kind of have an example, some some Old Testament examples brought to the surface here. It it seems like an abrupt change from verse five to verse six, talking about the greatness of God, and then here's Moses and Aaron and Samuel. But in verses six and seven, we see through the example of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel that God is not a God that's far off, but one who both hears and answers the prayers of his people. Because listen, when you're left to reflect upon the reign of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, you might be tempted to think that that God is so much greater that he is distant But I think one of the beautiful things about this psalm that while it magnifies the greatness and glory of God in all of his splendor and beauty, it also reminds us that he is a God who draws near to his people. This holy, righteous, sovereign God not only hears the prayers of his people, he will answer the prayers of his people. That's amazing. I don't know, just think about that. I think we blow right past that too quickly. Yes, God hears our prayer. No, do you realize who this God is? He he spoke and planets and stars formed. He upholds them just with his own power. I mean, he speaks and things are created. He is without sin. He is perfect in every aspect of his being. He always does what is right. He is 
flawless. He is beautiful. He is majestic. He is all powerful. He rules kings and kingdoms. He raises up kings and he brings them down. He can speak a word and lay nations bare. And this same God invites you, friend, to commune with him. And he hears your prayers and he answers your prayers. That is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Prayer is a prominent and necessary part of our worship of God. Our individual worship of him and our corporate worship of him, sometimes I get the question, why do we pray so much on our worship service? Let's just sing more. Because we get to talk to the holy creator of the universe and he invites us into his presence. Yes, we must pray to him. It should be a joyful delight. But friends, this would not be possible had God not acted in Christ to resolve the conflict that our sin brings between us and God. I said earlier that the holiness of God creates for us a significant problem, which leads me to number five, the fifth reason we have to worship God is that he forgives sin. You see that in verse eight. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. He forgives us of our sins. Does it go on, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. God's forgiveness doesn't mean that he doesn't, that, that God forgiving us of our sin doesn't mean that he overlooks our wrongdoings. He'll always hold us accountable to the things that we do wrong, but he will pardon us. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel all served important roles within ancient Israel, but they were just like us. They were sinners. They too needed forgiveness. Perhaps the most amazing thing about the nature and character of God is that while in his holiness and righteousness, he has every right to punish us in our sins, and yet he has acted through Christ to pardon us from our sins. Because he is holy, in his character, and because he is righteous and always does what is right and just, he has every right to punish us forever. But instead, he has chosen to pardon those who would look to his son in faith and find redemption. He will forgive you. He will pardon us. Again, this isn't to mean that he overlooks his righteousness or somehow somehow that God extends mercy to the expense of his righteousness. Not at all. God's righteousness, the fact that he does what is right and just and his mercy find their perfect meeting place in the person and work of Jesus. God's anger and punishment against sin, his righteousness, 
His justice is being executed upon Christ at the cross, while at the same time, the mercy and grace and forgiveness, the love of God is being displayed in Christ at the cross. Same event, both things happening. God is punishing sin, God is pardoning sinners. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Some of you don't look amazed. It's New Year's Day, maybe. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Jesus was the embodiment of righteousness as he never once fell to temptation by perfectly keeping the law of God and yet he died upon the cross as a sacrifice for sin so that through his perfect life, the righteousness God demands is met through his sacrificial death of his son. This is how we can be brought into the presence of God and know him. This is how we can have a right relationship with a holy and righteous and sovereign God because of Jesus and Christ. Jesus Christ and him alone is how we have this opportunity. In a book entitled True Worshippers, Bob Coughlin put it this way. No worship leader, pastor, or musician can bring us into the presence of God. It's not a certain prayer or a particular liturgy, a sacred object or the right bodily posture or even a certain mindset. Only Jesus can lead us into God's presence. Only Jesus. Friends, are you trusting in him? Are you depending upon Christ? So friends, here in this Psalm, we have an amazing glimpse, not an exhaustive glimpse, but it's amazing. Just a brief glimpse of the one whom we are privileged to worship. He is sovereign, he is holy, he is just. He delights in hearing the prayers of a people. He is also acted to pardon. Friends, this is the God we are most honored and blessed to know and to worship. And how we respond to God in our worship will be dictated by what we know about him. Your passion about God will be the outworking both of what you know of God and have experienced by him. Now let's look at the second point that I believe this text helps us to see and that is responding in worship. We could spend the rest of the series on reasons to worship God. Week by week, just unpacking reason after reason after reason after reason. We could spend 52 weeks, we could spend the entire year on a sermon series on reasons why we should worship God and just begin to open up the, the depths of who he is. But because it's in this text, I want us to see a few things about responding in worship. If I were to ask you to write down three things we do in worship. So if I were to say, write down three things that we do in worship. Maybe do that if you have a pen in your hand. Write down three things that, that define worship for you or experiences of worship. What would those three things be? Certainly you could have more than three things, but if I were to say, write down three things that are involved in worship, what would you write down or what are you writing down? My guess is that many of our lists would include singing, praying, perhaps, maybe some aspect of Bible teaching, preaching, or receiving God's word. 
And those all would be correct answers. But again, my concern is that we have a restricted view of what worship really is. Some of us would even just equate worship with song. Worship is over, now we're going to have preaching. Again, restricted view of what worship is. Now next week, we're going to tease out this, this a little bit more as we consider Romans 12, 1 and 2 of what it means to, for all of our life to be committed to worship. But I want us to see a few things from this text. Because it's right here, with the reasons to worship God, we do see these responses in worship. There are many different responses, even in this psalm. We see, let the peoples tremble, let the earth quake, let them praise your great and awesome name, exalt the Lord, worship at his footstool. Just several of the responses we see in worshiping God. This is who God is, this is how people, and even we go back to Psalm 98, even the creation, even seas and rivers and hills respond to him. But at least three times in this text, in this psalm, we see some usage of the word exalt. You see it in verse Five. You see it in verse two, he's exalted, speaking of his status. You see it more of an imperative form, exalt the Lord in verse five. You see it again in more of an imperative form in verse nine. Exalt. To exalt means simply, just to be simple with our definition, that we're to lift up the Lord. Not that he literally needs it, because verse two already says he is exalted. So for us to exalt him in verse five and again in verse nine is not to lift him higher than he already is, for he cannot be more exalted than he currently is. Simply means that the Lord must become the sole focus of our praise and adoration. Exalting the Lord, when we are called to exalt the Lord, it's not to do something to God to make him greater. He's already infinitely great. You can't do anything more to make God better than he is. But what it is is more of a re reflection for our own hearts and more of a responsibility for our own hearts and lives for us to, to properly see God as the center, as the focus, as the sole focus of our adoration and devotion. So for example, when the psalmist declares in Psalm 34, verse three, oh, come and magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He's just simply saying, let's come together and place our corporate attention strictly on God. Let's all get together and just focus all of our hearts and minds on who God is. That's what it means to exalt him. There are many things that will reach for our focus and attention in worship, whether it's corporate worship like this or individual worship throughout the week. But friends, we must fight to make sure God is being exalted in our worship. So as we think about what it means to exalt God, I think we could summarize into two categories from this text. 
Exalting God will involve both our attitude and our actions. For us to focus on who God is, for him to become the sole focus of who we are, will impact and involve our attitude and our actions. Let's consider first quickly our, our, our attitude. We exalt the Lord when we have the right perspective of who he is. Notice the psalm begins with a reason to worship God and a response. The Lord reigns, reason, let the peoples tremble, response. We see throughout the Bible, certainly right here, that a right response to God involves some aspect of reverence. See it all throughout the Bible. Exodus 20, verse 18, there in the time of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the Israelites, quote, were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Isaiah chapter 6, we quoted that earlier. Isaiah responded, woe is me. Revelation, chapter one, verse seven, when John encountered the risen Christ, he fell at his feet as though dead. Now, I'm not saying that when you come to corporate worship, for example, you should stay in the parking lot or you should just fall on your face and just be paralyzed in fear. But what I am saying is that when we read the Bible and understand exactly people's responses of God and their attitude of who he is, they understood he was much bigger than they were. So it is right to help people see that while God is holy, he is approachable. I think that that's what we often try to do in, throughout our churches and throughout, um, throughout the world, helping people worship God. But friend, as we help people worship God and approach God, that does not mean we should grow casual in our approach to him. Sometimes in our attempt to make worship approachable and relevant, we lessen the severity of who God is. And that is dangerous. Now to clarify, in no way does this deny the biblical support of exuberance and passion in worship. Just a quick reminder of the psalm that we opened up with this morning from Psalm 98, where it says to make a joyful noise, to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Certainly that is appropriate. You'll notice that even in the examples I give from Psalm 99, about the people's reverent response to God, they all of these responses involve some outward response. So our attitude, we just need to understand who it is that we come before. But it also involves our actions. You know, in the example of the Old Testament believers in Moses and Aaron and Samuel here in verse six, for example, we see that they called upon him and kept his testimonies. They called upon the Lord, they prayed, they sought him, and they kept his testimonies. They sought to be obedient to his law. In other words, when they came to see who God was, they responded to him with right actions as they sought to live out faithful and obedient lives. And listen, 
exalting the Lord doesn't begin and end with a song. As important songs are. Exalting the Lord doesn't begin or end with a song. We can exalt the Lord in a number of ways. You can exalt the Lord with your thoughts and your motives. You can exalt the Lord in your faith. You can exalt the Lord in how you love other people. You can exalt the Lord in how you speak and how you witness for Christ. You can exalt the Lord in how grateful you demonstrate yourself to be. You can exalt the Lord in serving him through some act of service. And on and on we can go. This is why we need to understand that all of life is in one way or another an act of devotion and worship to God. Worship doesn't begin at 10.30 and end whenever I stop preaching. It's just that as we're all worshiping God and exalting him, we just kind of get together on this Lord's day and we do it together for a while in a very specific, particular way. Another way that we could put it, maybe more negatively, you can, you can sing all you want. You can come together and give of tithes and offerings and pray. You can raise your hands. You can cry your head off. But if you go off into your week degrading your spouse, slandering coworkers, and grumbling about everything around you, you are no more a worshiper of God than you are a hypocrite. Worship is not disconnected from the day-to-day calling we have as Christians to live out lives of faithfulness in light of God's faithful commands that he's given us. So it involves our actions. Well, friends, our worship of God will never be what it should be until we start with who it is we worship. That matters. Once we've encountered the God of our worship and all that he is, then our hearts will be in a proper place to worship him. Scholar Michael Horton perhaps summed it up quite well. He said, vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads to making our own praise the object. Praise, therefore, becomes an end in itself, and we are caught up in our own worship experience rather than the God whose character and acts are the only proper focus. Brothers and sisters, let us never be vague. Let's never be vague about the object of our worship. Let's not be vague about who God is. So as you strive, maybe this year, a new commitment and resolve to the Lord by God's grace, as you strive to grow in your worship of God, may I suggest not to start with your iPod or even an evaluation of the song selection on Sunday. But friend, I would encourage you to start with a heart that grows deeper in your understanding of who God is. But when you get the who right, the how will come along in a right fashion as well. As the Bible reveals very clearly who this God is. 
So let's be faithful in pursuing him. Not a God of our own imagination and creation, but the God who has revealed himself clearly and perfectly in his word. Let's know this God so that we can worship him as he rightly deserves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us without instruction. We thank you, God, that you have not left us with without clear instruction. Father, we want to be faithful worshipers of you. And yet, Lord, we also know that there are times in our lives when our worship is greatly hindered, not because of something we've heard or, or sung per, per, per se, but oftentimes our, our worship of you is hindered because of our own selfishness and pride and sin. Our worship often is hindered because, Lord, we are not seeing you for who you truly are. So, God, would you help us to, to build a life of worship on a right foundation of your holy and righteous character. God, that we would be a people who know much about you. Father, that we would seek to grow in our worship of you as we seek to grow deeper in our understanding of you. God, would you help us to know you more? Would you help us to, to see you for who you truly are, for what you've truly done? God, we thank you that we can worship because of what you've done through Christ. Or maybe that there are people here in this room today that they don't feel like that they can worship or are able to worship. And it may be, Lord, that they, they can't because they don't have a right relationship with you through Christ. And Lord, even now, would you work in their hearts and stir their hearts and, and understanding to help them to see that their only hope of being right with you is Christ. And Father, that you would just allow them to respond even today in faith. Father, would you help us to be a people of worship? For we were made to worship, that we would be faithful in our worship. Lord, you know our hearts and you know where we are with you. God, would you search our hearts and would you teach us? Would you help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.